You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Imagine, if you dare... Whoa, 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 hold tight, let's... A podcast so shocking... No, it's not that shocking, it's just... So disturbing... Now you're just being dramatic... That it will chill you to your very core... I don't... Have you even heard the show? There's no escaping... I mean, there is... The horrible consequences of... Just press pause, but don't do that... Right day... My name is Byron McCoy, and each week I join my friends Sam and Kelly, where we talk films, monsters, the paranormal, and pretty much all things frightening. From time to time, we talk with like-minded specialists, directors, actors, cryptozoologists, conspiracy theorists, but whether it's the human terror of serial killers and home invasions, or the extra-normal phenomena Kelly covers in her Cryptids and Conspiracies segment, if it bleeds, hacks, stabs, chops, summons, sacrifices, abducts, or bites, it is Fright Day. Every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at FrightDay.com. FrightDay.com. Stop it. You're scaring them. Sorry. Hi, I'm Annie. This is the Fresh Hell Podcast. And you just heard Byron from the Fright Night Podcast. If you enjoy our mix of topics, then Byron, Sam, and Kelly are hosts that you should definitely check out as well. Speaking of hosts, I've got a little bit of tough news. So, Johanna has just... Well, she's had enough, really, of the reviews complaining about her accent, and she is going to be leaving the show. So I hope you're happy. Two years, you know, it was a good run. April Fools. Just kidding. Here's what's actually happening. (laughs) What's actually happening is that Johanna has a really, really bad cold. She has completely lost her voice. If she tries to talk, it's like a croaking, coughing combination. It's not pretty. It doesn't sound pleasant. I think she feels really lousy. She did have a COVID test, and the great news is it was negative. So don't any of you be worrying about that. She will hopefully be back next week. Now, this has happened once before. But in that case, I had a story to tell her. And so it was really easy for me to just record my story for her and send it to her knowing that she does all of the editing so she would be listening to it. This time, she was going to be telling me a story that I had never heard. But she managed to turn her notes into a story that I can read out loud, and so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the story that she planned to tell, and then she can cut whatever rambling reactions I have. And if I get anything wrong, that's on me. I'm sure that, if necessary, she'll do a quick corrections bit next week, or we may start out next week discussing this a little bit. We'll see. If this is the first time you've listened to one of our episodes, please know there are usually two of us, and we are the hosts of your favorite international podcast. Are we the only international podcast? Maybe. Because we not only cover cases and stories from all over the world, but also because we are living on two different continents, we carry two different national passports, we have never met in real life, we grew up speaking different languages, but our love of murder, mystery, and the macabre, and gopher from the love boat has united us, and now... We are releasing a new episode every Wednesday for the past two years. Can anyone believe that? 
It's hard for me to believe it, and we honestly would not have done this for such a long time if we didn't have the best listeners in the world. I mean, really, we really sincerely have the most wonderful listeners anyone could ever hope for, and we're just so grateful. Thank you for your ongoing support, for your reviews, sharing our content, the kind, very kind, supportive messages you send, and just for being the best people. You're the best. We love our Facebook group. We love you. You're all amazing. Thank you. And we, of course, want to send a very special thank you out to our newest Patreon patrons, our patrons of the arts, the macabre arts. Yes, thank you. They are Christina Preston, Pamela Elliott, Hope Dibble, Rocky Ratone, hey, Annie Ricker, another Annie, and S. Nicole. Thank you all so much. We really... I can't, I'm just, I still can't believe that, that this is a thing that people are supporting us in this way. And, um, we just, we really appreciate it. And we also want to thank Linda from Germany. Hi, Linda. She asked us if she can support us with a one-time donation through PayPal, which she then did. And so we're very grateful to you, Linda, for your generous support. Also, Aphrodite1911, you wrote a really lovely review and you asked what Johanna says at the end of every episode. Not in this one, but every other one. And what she says, it sounds a little bit like choose. It's actually spelled T-S-C-H-E-U with like the two dots. Is that an umlaut? And then S-S. So choose. T-S-C-H-U-S-S. And it's the German way of saying goodbye. Like, bye to close friends. Like a, like a, what's the word? Uh, not formal. Informal. <laughs> way of saying goodbye to people. So, choose. That's what she says. To say goodbye at the end of each episode. Now, if you want to know more about our Patreon, uh, listen to the end of this episode, because now I am going to read to you what Johanna has sent me. All right, I'm going to open this now, and let's see what we've got here. I know a little bit about it, but not very much. All right, this is from Johanna. Today I want to tell you all about a disaster that took place in 1978 in Spain, and I think this is the first time that I've ever told you alone about a disaster. Yeah, I think you're right. She says, I know we both covered the Empire State Building, and Annie, you did several like the Beer Flood and the Coconut Grove, but I don't think I've done one. I think you're right. I don't think that you have. So she says, I thought I'd cover something else and change it up a bit. Sounds good. All right. Okay, Johanna writes, Travel back with me in time to the summer of 1978. I wasn't born yet, still another seven months, until I gave mankind the honor to grace this world with my presence. Yes, thank you. <laughs> she says, oh, now we're going to get at least one review telling me how full I am of myself. For sure. At least one. She says, okay, summer 1978. She says, do you have summer hits in the U.S. like songs that are super popular during the summer? Here in Austria and Germany, the biggest hit was Rivers of Babylon in the summer of 1978. Rivers of Babylon. If you sang a little bit of it to me, I would maybe know it, but I don't recognize the title. She says, other popular songs were You're the One That I Want. Yeah, I know that one. Hey Carol by Smokey. I'm not sure what was... Oh, I should have kept reading. 
She says, I checked also for U.S. Hellions. Thank you. Your number one hit in July of 1978 was Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb, the unbearded Gibb brother. Nice. Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. That one was popular here as well, but I never liked it. Also, still the same by Bob Seeger and the amazing Groove Line by Heatwave. I'm not sure if I know Groove Line by Heatwave. Again, if I heard it, I probably know it. She says, all you 70s kids out there, can you picture it? Can you feel it? Yeah, we're not 70s kids per se. We're kind of more 80s kids. I'm 77 and Johanna's 79. Um... But she says, lately I often have this extreme nostalgia and longing for my childhood, and it's all bittersweet. Maybe some of you can relate. Yeah, it's because of your dad, honey. It's I'm having very, very much the same thing with my mom. It's like you suddenly just remember all of these happy memories, and it, it's, yeah, it's very bittersweet, for sure. I think anyone that's lost a parent has gone through that sort of really trying to remember the happy highlights, right, of our of our childhoods with that lost parent. Okay, so Johanna says, what did families in the U.S. usually do for summer vacation in the 70s? Was there a certain typical destination where people would go, or did it depend on where you lived? Was vacationing more in your own state, or did families spend summer vacation often out of state? That's a good question. I think it depended a lot on where in the country you live, right? So in New England, places like Cape Cod and really any other coastal community right up to Bar Harbor, I mean, honestly, the east coast of the coasts of the country, I mean, people would sort of go to the coasts, right? Vermont is also beautiful. We're living in New England. We might go as far as Canada. If I were going to speak for the country as a whole, Disney World in Orlando opened in the early 1970s, and I think it sort of became a mecca, right? Disney in California had already been open, but it was in the early 70s that Orlando Disney opened, and I think that was the whole impetus for the film National Lampoon's Vacation, right? I mean, in that it was the moose, which instead of the mouse. I think a lot of Americans have a place they like to go in the summertime. Maybe it's camping. Maybe they rent a spot in, you know, a cabin in the woods or something near a lake or a pond or a river or hiking in the mountains. There are so many national parks in this country. The diversity of just climate and geography here is is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, there's a lot of places to visit. It's a big country. And if you could afford it, then, yeah, places like Hawaii became super popular in the 70s, resorts in Mexico, and of course, always Europe. I had friends who went on vacations in Europe, but we we didn't really have that kind of money growing up. So we went to Canada a few times. But the first time that I ever left North America was on a class trip to Spain in my first year of high school. I was born in, as I said, 77. I believe we. my first trip to Spain was 92, 92. So quite a while after 1970, but also it was long enough ago that there was a smoking section on the plane. But yeah, I think in America, it's just so different. I think, you know, you'd talk to people from different parts of the country and everybody would probably have a place they like to go to, but I don't know that there's like a specific place. All right, back to Johanna. She says, In Austria, you would typically go to Italy. Nice. Croatia and Hungary were still out of bounds for another 10 or 11 years. And I should say, I just said nice when 
she said she goes to Italy. But of course, remember that in Austria, going to Italy would be like if me in Massachusetts, if I went to New Hampshire or, you know, Vermont, it's less exotic if you live there, right? So she says, in the 1970s, Spain became more and more popular as a tourist destination, and some Austrians also went there, but that would usually include flying, so that was more reserved for families that were more financially comfortable. Yeah, I get that. But many people from Germany, France, Belgium jumped on planes or loaded up their camper or packed a tent and sleeping bags in their cars, and off they went to Spain. It was during the last years of Francisco Franco, the dictator of his life, when tourism really started to boom in the country. Between 1960 and 1973, the number of tourists went from 0.4 million to 3.6 million a year. That's a lot of growth. Although I would argue that this goes for many countries, not only Spain, as the end 60s and to mid-70s were the real start of mass tourism. In 1975, Francisco Franco died, and Spain was transformed from a dictatorship to a constitutional monarchy, and tourists kept coming, I assume now, even with a lighter conscience. And it's actually partly thanks to tourism that life in Spain started to be a little bit more liberal. Spain is a Catholic country, and during the early days of tourism, you could be fined for showing shoulders or for wearing a bikini or for kissing in public. Yeah, I think liberal is in the eye of the beholder, right? That's all I'm going to say about that. Johan, but it's true though, right? Like, it very much changes around the world, depending on who you ask. Johanna says, But after a while, the tourist centers started to relax a bit, and even gay bars were now able to be found. The first one was open in the 1960s in Torremolinos. Nice. The most popular destinations were, of course, the islands like Majorca or Menorca, but also the mainland had some beloved spots. The Costa Blanca around Alicante, Costa Brava, Costa del Sol, with the aforementioned Torremolinos, and Andalucía was very popular, and of course the Costa Dorada, the Golden Coast in the province of Tarragona and Catalonia. Uh, yeah, we drove part of that when we drove from Valencia up to Barcelona when Paul and I were in Spain, which... Oh, was uh, coming up on 11 years ago. We really need to go back. Okay. She says, Johanna continues, The reason that the Costa Dorada was so popular was the fact that it had many beaches with smooth golden sand glistening in the sun. While, for example, the Costa Brava, the wild coast, is more rocky. And it really is beautiful, this coast, that spans its 216 kilometers, 134 miles, from Belanueva y Geltru in the north to Alcanar in the south. Another plus, it's closer to the French border than the Costa del Sol, Granted, not as close as the Costa Brava, but it's still a shorter drive from France, Belgium, or even Germany. I just randomly picked Cologne as a starting point, and nowadays that would be a 15-hour drive. Yeah, that makes sense. Quick sidebar. When Paul and I were in Spain in, it was April of 2010, that's when we got engaged, and uh, we were there for, I consider her a sister, Noelia, uh, to wedding. When we were flying home, it was when the volcano in Iceland had erupted. And so as we were waiting in line to check in, it was Spain and Portugal were sort of the last ways out if you were heading back toward the US. And as we were waiting in line to try to check in for our flight, we sort of had our fingers crossed that we'd be stuck in Spain, that we could call, you know, our family that are in Madrid and Gijón and just be like, we're stuck for another few weeks. We're coming to stay. But no, we got out. But we did talk to people who had done just this. They, for whatever reason, they had 
a wedding to go to or a big business meeting or whatever was happening, there were these people that we were talking to who had like all met in, you know, there was a group from Germany, there was a group from England, there was a group from, they were from all over Europe that like randomly together rented, it was like a film, randomly like would share rides and just drove to Spain to try to get out of Europe. It was really interesting. Okay, so back to Johanna. Infrastructure was a bit different back then. The expensive Spanish interstates, or autopistas, were just starting out. And she says, this was a tiny bit of background on Spanish tourism. I always find these things interesting, so you have to hear it. Now, I find this interesting, too. I think everybody does. Okay. If you travel to the Costa Dorada today, or at least pre-COVID-19, you could choose between 78 camping grounds. I could not find out how many it was in July of 1978, but I'd assume less. And one of the campsites was Los Alfaques, situated 98 kilometers or 60 miles northeast of Tarragona and just outside the town of San Carlos de Rapita. I almost called it a small town, but it has a population of 14,000. In 1970, it was 9,000, and now people from many countries all over the world go, but that's tiny, but that, to us, that feels big. Los Alfaques is located at kilometer 159 on the N340 National Road that leads from Barcelona all the way to Cadiz. That is 1,248 kilometers or 775 miles, and it pretty much follows the course of the former Roman Via Augusta, the longest and most important road that the Romans had built in Spain, or what we nowadays call Spain. The campsite is located right in between the beach and the N340. It has a width of 50 meters, which is 55 yards, and she says, I read two numbers that it was laid out for a max occupancy of 200 or 400, but she says that she thinks that 400 is the correct number and what you find stated most of the time, but she just wanted to mention it. She says, I don't want to keep anything from you. We got it. So you can either set your tent up there or park your trailer, or you can stay in one of the apartments on the northeast end of the site. And there was was also a nightclub situated on the site. Well, that sounds fun. Like, nice. On the northwest end of the site was the entrance, so there was sort of a reception area and then a restaurant. And while it looks nice there, I have to say two things that would have probably made me not want to stay there. First of all, the beach at Los Alfaques, it's not sand. It's stones and pebbles. Oh, yeah. Okay. The other thing is the N340. I guess it was okay if you stayed in one of the apartments. I think they were facing the beach or if your lot was closer to the beach. But if you had the misfortune to get a lot that's basically next to the street, I don't know. It must have been noisy. And while I probably would have had no problem with that 20 years ago, nowadays I need peace and quiet. She says, and Annie, you're just thinking, why are you even thinking about camping? Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I mean, even if I was a person who enjoyed camping, I don't think I'd want to camp right next to a road only because one of the things people tell me that they do enjoy about camping is the quiet. You know, it's sort of getting away and getting into nature. That said, if you are camping at a beach, I'm guessing the ones by the road are probably more affordable. So yeah, you know, I guess, you know, better than better than no vacation, right? And I think I just didn't grow up in a camping family. 
you know, I think, you know, my dad was in the army and my dad's a Vietnam veteran. And I think he probably had his fill of sleeping in tents while he was in the army. He also went to military school, uh, military university. So I think he probably had had enough, like, tenting (laughs) for a lifetime by the time my sister and I were born. We did have a little tent and I feel like we did go camping once or twice. I know my sister and I like to sleep on the tent, (laughs) but like in the backyard, you know, not real camping. And we used to take, you know, the vacations that we did take were not fancy. We'd stay in little cabins and things, but not camping. I think that's probably why I didn't do a lot of camping. I remember going Girl Scout camping and my mom came with us, but we were all in cabins. It it wasn't tents. And my mom brought a coffee percolator. She was like, where do I plug this in? So yeah, not a wealthy family, but not a camping family. Now with my health stuff, do you have any idea how hard it is to get me off an air mattress? You'll probably find out one day. I don't mind sleeping on them. Like I got no problem if I'm sleeping on a on a comfortable air mattress. It's just good luck getting me out of one. That's one of the things we're training Opus to do, actually. Uh, he's doing service dog training to help me when I fall to like stand back up again. So hence why we have a Great Dane. So. Johanna says, this time I have to agree about camping. I don't think she's agreeing with everything I just said, but just the fact that I'm a bit about camping. She says, when I'm talking about camping, I mean nature and not a crowded beach site. Ah, see? Just what I had said. She says, don't get me wrong. I can also totally understand the appeal. As a kid, teenager, or young adult, I would have absolutely been okay with staying there. Yes, same. Well, like music festivals. I never, I was sort of the wrong age to do any of the the music festivals. My cousins do them in the UK. But yes, if I, if I were in my 20s, sure, I'd have gone camping. Totally agree. And she says, and it's not just because it's more cost efficient to take your family on a campsite. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, sorry. I misunderstood what she's saying. She says, I totally understand the appeal and not just because it's more cost efficient. Yes, I know a lot of people who can afford very expensive vacations and they love going camping. I, it's Camping is something you love or not so much. And it, it really doesn't have anything to do with socioeconomic status, I don't think. So Johanna continues, I saw interviews with people who had stayed at Los Alfaques in July of 1978, and it was like a tight little, like a little tight-knit community. Some said they had been going there for four or five years already, and you'd look forward to meeting your summer friends again, and maybe some sweet, sweet summer romances had started to blossom the year before, and oh, maybe she'll be back again this year, and we can kiss behind the kiosk again. Oh, Johanna, you're bringing back so many memories. She says it sounds nice and exciting. Yes, yes. There are a ton of campgrounds on the Cape. Nickerson is the nearest one to us. And people will book there every year for generations, like really generations. Um, I think it's amazing if you love camping. And also, you know, where our little cottage was, a lot of the other little cottages would be rented. And there were my friend Nat, my friend Nikki and Christy, like all these people that I'm still very close to are literally kids I met as a kid whose family rented the same cottage, little cottage, year after year, you know? And it's the same thing that happens at campsites. I think it's great. If you love camping, there are a lot of things I love that other people would very much prefer to skip in favor of camping. I'd go RVing though, you know? I just don't want people to think I'm like bashing camping. It's just not for me. 
All right, let's get back to the case. I'm kind of enjoying this. This is, I don't know if everyone listening is enjoying this, but I'm, this is interesting. It's, um, I miss talking to Johanna, but this is interesting. It's, it reminds me of letter writing. This is bringing back all the old feels. All right. It's the 11th of July, 1978, and July and August are, as in many places, the hottest months. And in the interviews, everyone said it was hot. People at Los Alfaques probably woke up enjoying the relatively cool morning, or cooler morning, knowing that pretty soon they would be laying in the sun like lizards. Yeah, the heat making the air almost shimmering. Yes. There is a good reason why the traditional siesta is still common practice in many hot regions on this planet. I'm a fan. And she says, remember, while the site was laid out for a maximum of 400 guests, that day there were roughly 800 people staying at the Los Alfaques camping ground. So double than what was planned. People had their breakfast. They went down to the beach. Dads did set up their propane barbecue grills. Just nice, regular vacation day to be enjoyed. But unfortunately, disaster was headed their way, and it would change their lives forever. And this disaster was moving toward them on the N340, the national road that led right by Los Alvaque. It came in the form of a truck driven by 50-year-old Francisco Viena. The tractor unit was pulling a trailer filled with propylene in liquid form. In case you don't know, here is a quote from lindy-gas.com. Quote, propylene C3H6 is a colorless fuel gas with a naturally pungent smell. Although similar to propane, it has a double bond which gives it a combustion advantage, i.e. it burns hotter. This fuel gas is extremely flammable and non-toxic. Propylene is obtained during the refining of gasoline, but it can also be produced by splitting, cracking, and reforming hydrocarbon mixtures. Propylene is an attractive alternative to propane for heating and cutting due to its superior combustion performance. It is also widely used as fuel gas for high-velocity oxygen fuel processes. In addition, the chemical and plastics industry rely on propylene as a fuel gas, end quote. And it's shipped in liquid form, of course. Around 10 a.m., Francisco pulls his truck into the loading area of the N-Petrol refinery, just nine kilometers north of Tarragona. The truck was supposed to be filled with 19.3 tons of liquid propylene to be delivered to Puerto Llano. That's a distance of 640 kilometers, or 398 miles, from Tarragona. I read, and I hope that's correct, that on a drive that long, there were actually supposed to be two drivers, but for whatever reason, it was just Francisco that day. Now, I saw a dramatization of the event where they showed the second driver to run late because he overslept, but I honestly think that this is just a nice movie explanation. If I would have to take a wild guess, I'd say that it was in fact not unusual for drivers to be alone on routes like that. It's the late 70s, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. It had a more laissez-faire vibe and a what could possibly go wrong, yes, seemed to have been the slogan for most of the era. Yes, yes, Johanna, yeah, I think that's very much a a solid possibility. All right, she continues. Now, for whatever reason, maybe by accident, maybe because of neglect, the truck was not loaded with the absolute maximum of the 19.3 tons, but with, oh, 23.4 tons of propylene. So that's over four tons of the safe maximum design load for this truck. Four tons over. Wow. Okay. 
She says, again, maybe it was another meh, nothing ever happened before moment, who can say. I read it was apparently a common practice within petrol, but it could either be because the meter was not working properly, or they just did it on purpose, like not caring. Also, I have to add that this trailer was built in 1973, so it's not super old, but maybe it's already slightly outdated by 1978. I don't know how fast trailer development was in the 70s. I do know this, though. There were no emergency pressure release valves that would prevent a so-called B-L-E-V-E. Believe? Blev. I don't know what people who use the term regularly would say. It stands for a boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion. Well, shit, that sounds bad. I hope people don't use that term too often. She says, these valves were mandatory to transport flammable liquid, so the truck had been used to transport other stuff, and some of that other stuff was corrosive and had caused the steel on the tank to get brittle. Oh no. But guess what? These valves were no longer mandatory in 1978, and so now it was used to transport said flammable liquids. Also, the truck did pass the last check and was set up for another inspection in 1980. Oh boy, yeah. So to summarize, the truck is overloaded with liquid propylene, a highly flammable liquid gas. The truck tank is made from brittle steel. The truck does not have emergency pressure release valves. And as I said, it is July in Spain. It's hot. Oh boy, all right. Filling up the tank takes roughly two hours, and at noon, Francisco leaves the refinery and is on his way to Puerto Llano. There is an interstate that Francisco could use. It's the AP-7, the so-called Autopista Mediterrano, but the company doesn't want to pay the toll fee. Motherfuckers. Basically, they say it's up to the driver which route to choose, and if the driver wants to take the AP-7, then it's up to them, and therefore they have to pay the toll themselves. What is this, a fucking taxi? Sorry, that's me, not Johanna. I hope you all can tell. I think you can. Back to Johanna. Later, Francisco's colleagues state they heard Francisco arguing that he wanted to take the AP-7 because it was faster and safer, but he didn't want to pay for it out of pocket, which is absolutely understandable. Yeah, no shit. What, you think these truck drivers are making huge, huge money? My god, these giant companies. Mmm. All right. So, in the end, he takes the N340. Not only is the street narrower and often winding, it also leads through populated areas, as we already know, because it leads right past the camping site in Los Alfaques. Francisco and his truck full of propylene are on their way. It's noon. It's 1 p.m. It's hot. The temperature is still rising. People have had lunch and now retreat to their houses, their apartments, their tents, or their campers to take a nap. Francisco passes through villages and little towns. The truck heats up. The sun heats up the metal. The propylene expands. But there is no room for the gas to safely expand because, remember, the tank is grossly overfilled and there are no emergency valves to release the pressure of the expanding propylene. Francisco leaves San Carles de Rapito behind, passing condominium buildings. He'd already driven for 102 kilometers or 63 miles when he reaches Los Alfaques at 2.30 in the afternoon. We don't know exactly what happens then because we have a couple eyewitness reports. Some said that they saw the truck approaching and that all of a sudden white fog could be seen coming out of the tank so that the tank had probably burst and started to leak and then the truck swerved. Others say that it did burst right at the moment the truck was about to pass the camping ground and that they heard 
heard a loud bang. A third possibility was that a tire exploded with a loud bang, and that's what caused the truck to swerve. I think all of these are equally plausible explanations, and there are some that also think that Francisco had fallen asleep behind the wheel. I don't know why, but I doubt that. Okay, I agree, yes, that those are all absolutely plausible explanations, and I also agree that... I don't want, let's not say that maybe Francisco fell asleep behind the wheel, right? Because there's so many reasons that it has nothing to do with the driver. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. All right. She says, so the truck is swerving and it crashes into the wall that separates the road from the campsite. The cab goes through the wall, the tank gets separated from the engine and is kind of catapulted further back into the direction of the restaurant. The propylene starts leaking out of the tank and the people who just saw what happened, you know, with a quick mind and quick feet, run immediately toward the beach and into the water. (sighs) Oh my god, smart people to have that quick of a reaction. Uh, She says, because of course the gas almost instantly ignites and now there's a huge wall of fire moving across the campsite, moving from row to row, from tent to trailer, and it's fueled by the bottles of propane for the barbecue grills. Oh my god. I'm... Wow. Yeah. And she says, and don't forget, Los Alfaques was over their capacity, oh God, over their capacity. Instead of 400 guests, there were 800 there that day. And some think this was a rather conservative number and that the real number of guests is closer to a thousand. So the place is absolutely packed. One camper or tent right next to each other with barely any space between them, which was perfectly fine at the time. Like the explosion of the tank generated a heat of a thousand degrees centigrade or 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit and left a hole in the ground. Like I'm going to say that's a crater, Johanna, measuring 20 by 2 meters or 65 by 5 feet. That's, I think that's beyond hole. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm solid on that. That's a fucking crater. Jesus. All right. I don't, you can tell now all of you that I don't want to keep reading this because it's going to get bad. Er, worse. 90% of the main camping ground was burned down. The nightclub and restaurant were pretty much destroyed, and the tank was left in three pieces. The explosion killed Francisco Viena, the truck driver. When they found him, his wristwatch had stopped at 2.35 p.m., the time of the explosion. I'm amazed his wristwatch survived. All the people in the surrounding area were killed as well. I think even the staff members of the discotheque all died. In total, 157 people died there at the camping site Los Alfaques, and it would take first responders almost an hour to get there. So the ones who were unharmed or not that severely injured started to look for survivors. Locals came running and helped as well. They placed them in the cars that were still working and took them to the nearest hospital. It was absolute chaos, but people still tried to help as much as they could. This is... I can't even imagine. People always do, though, don't they? It's like... Well, locally, I guess the thing we all think of here would be, of course, the Boston Marathon bombings. And you you look at footage from that day and through the soot and through just the absolute horror, there are so many people running toward the explosion. And there were doctors and nurses that were just, had just crossed the finish line of the marathon and they just kept running 
and took off toward local hospitals. It, it It's amazing how much people do, isn't it? But this is, this is devastating. Johanna says, a huge problem was that parts of the truck still completely blocked the road. So when the ambulances and firefighters finally made it there, they had to split up the victims. One half were taken to hospitals north of Los Alfaques, and the other half were taken south. Oh, My God, this just keeps getting worse. All right, she says from sciencedirect.com, quote, For the first 12 hours, there was total chaos on the site of the disaster. The injured were removed in a completely unorganized fashion and without any triage. The number of ambulances was insufficient and long delays, about three hours, elapsed before the last victim was driven away. The burning tanker blocked the road, thus effectively dividing the injured into two groups, one being taken northwards and the other southwards. There were hospitals with similar standards at comparable distances in both directions, end quote. Well, thank God for that, but still, that's... Okay. So, Johanna continues. In the end, 270 people died, either on site or later, even some months later, due to injuries that they had obtained in Los Alfaques. You often read the death toll as 217, which is correct, but it fails to include the ones that died months later in their home country. Oh, God, that's awful. So, there are so many bodies... 157 who died on site, severely burned, and there is no real way to identify them. DNA testing doesn't exist yet, so they place the bodies in open coffins and they place all the things they could find on the bodies next to the coffin, and then they place rows of coffins in the main square. I wish you could see my face right now. Okay. If you are a relative and you are looking for your loved ones, you would first try to find them in the hospitals. But if they were not there, you would get over to the main square and walk through the rows of coffins and you would pray that you don't recognize a watch or a wallet or a piece of bathing suit. This is trauma beyond words. Yeah. Wow. Um. I'm trying hard not to cry about this one. I've been with people I loved when they died more often than I'd have liked to be, and that has varied from very traumatic to personally deeply painful, but not traumatic in any way. And then others that were in between. But I just really pray that I never have to try to identify a body. And if anyone out there listening has ever been in that situation, I just want to hug you. I can't imagine that level of, of pain. Oof. <clears throat> Johanna goes on. And she says, but even if you did find your missing family member or friend in one of the hospitals, that didn't mean that they would make it. Again, from ScienceDirect.com, quote, On the road to the north, the injured received adequate medical care once they had reached either the cottage hospital at Amposta or the hospital at Tortosa. 
At this stage, the final destination of 58 severely burned patients was the Francisco Franco Hospital in Barcelona, which has a burn unit with 31 beds. 82 severely burned patients were taken south to the La Fe Hospitals in Valencia, which has a burn unit with 14 beds. In most cases, no medical steps of any importance were taken during the journey. Several of the injured developed severe shock on the journey and had no measurable blood pressure on arrival. A comparative study of the 58 patients taken to Barcelona and the group of 82 patients taken to Valencia reveals the following facts. There is no significant difference between the two groups with regard to the patient's age and the extent and depth of their burns. The only certain difference is that the patients taken to Barcelona received adequate medical treatment during the journey, unlike most of the patients taken to Valencia who received no medical treatment at all during the journey. The medical treatment given at the two burn units in Barcelona and Valencia is first class and is in all essentials the same at both units. During the four days immediately following the disaster, the survival rate declined to 93% for the patients taken to Barcelona and 45% for those taken to Valencia. The reason for the significantly greater mortality in the Valencia patients must be the unsatisfactory medical treatment given en route to the hospital. 27 of the 31 patients who died during the first few days at the La Fe Hospital in Valencia had deep burns covering over 90% of the body surface. The remaining four deaths were also those of very severely burned patients, end quote. And can we please take a moment to thank our first responders, our EMTs, because that must have been very traumatic for those transporting the injured with nothing they could do. But also, from what I understand about burns, and I am not an expert, but if those people all had 90, if it was the 1970s and these people had deep burns on over 90% of their body, I don't think that's something that you would have been likely to survive even under the best circumstances, would you? I don't know. I hope the people who brought them knew there was nothing else that they could have done. This is a sad one. She says, this is Johanna. In the end, it was mostly the forensic teams in the individual home countries that did most of the identifications, and all victims could be identified sooner or later. For seven victims, it took several years. In the meantime, they were put to rest at the local cemetery in Tarragona. A French family of four was brought back to France several years later. A family of three from Colombia never returned to their home country. They still rest in that cemetery. When the disaster was investigated, microscopic cracks were found in the of the tank, indicating that it didn't withstand the pressure of the exploding propylene. And of course, with there being no valves and no room for it to expand. The cargo company that Francisco worked for, a company named Cisternas, Cisternas Reunidas, accepted part of the responsibility of what had happened in Los Alfaques. I'd say they had a lot of responsibility for that, just as Petrol did with the overloading. And apparently, the drivers didn't know when they were overloaded. They never received any former hazmat training, and while on the way, there was no way for them to check the pressure of the tank. Ugh, it's awful.
There were arrests made, two employees of Cisternas Reunidas and four employees of Enpetrol were convicted of criminal negligence in 1982 and were sentenced to serve between one and four years. None of them served much time. They either appealed and got reduced sentences or had their sentence suspended. The two companies did pay an equivalent of around 13.23 million euros at the time. It says equivalent of 13.3 euros at the time because it would have been a different, they weren't doing euros back then. Um, But whatever that is, however much money it was, I can tell you one thing, it wasn't enough money. She says, The one good thing that came from this disaster was the transit of populated areas by vehicles with dangerous cargo was prohibited in Spain, and they could only be driven at night. Only six months later, the camping site opened again, and it's still run by the same family to this day. There is a simple but tasteful memorial there. Wow, I feel like we should visit next time. And one last thing, she says, I read an article where one of the German survivors was interviewed, and she talks about how, yes, they received great physical treatment, but nobody back then thought about the psychological damage, not even the victims themselves. And she only started therapy 30 years after the disaster at Los Alfaques. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awful, but also not remotely surprising, really, given the time period, is it? I mean... I think of how many people I know that served in Vietnam or Gulf War, current war, how many of them have been to therapy. People didn't. People still don't. But especially then. Ugh. This is unbelievable. Johanna says, I want to tell you I cried, yeah, I bet, several times doing this research. It was just the thought of all of those happy families who were so much looking forward to their summer vacation, being excited for a whole year, looking forward to having a great time, and then your life has changed forever, and you come home without your parents, or your parents return without their children. Nowadays, these stories just make me incredibly sad. Uh, yeah, sad. And also, you know, I think grateful for the good times and the happy memories and mindful, always mindful that things can change so suddenly in your life without warning, you know, and things can get very hard and very bleak. That's actually why the Churchill quote from World War II, it's it's always resonated so much with me. If you're going through hell, keep going because you can get through and have more happy times and make new memories and grief becomes an easier burden to carry. It, it does. It gets easier. The first two years are the hardest. There are different issues with losing, like losing my best friend versus losing my husband versus losing my parent have all brought up very different issues within myself that you sort of don't realize are things that you maybe need to deal with or get through. If you've lost someone, you know what I'm talking about, right? But I think it's also so important to remember when we lose somebody that the thing that they want more than anything for us is for us to be as happy as we can be, right? It doesn't do them a disservice to be sad all the time. And that's what you just have to keep reminding yourself. Sorry, this bit's more just for Johanna. You just have to keep reminding yourself that 
the last thing your loved one wants, because we both believe, right, that they're around us, that they can see us, that they are with us. And I can't think of anything worse personally than watching someone I love crying because I've died. Like that's, that's actually my worst nightmare. Like I don't want to see that. Think of a happy time. It's hard. You have to go through the feelings. You have to, you have to grieve. You have to cry. But like the sooner you can get to the point where it's happy memories and you only cry every once in a while and you do get there. You, I promise you're going to get there. I promise. I promise. That's a better place to be in, you know, to, to just hold the happy memories and, um, and you can laugh and you can remember. And I, I know I'm really guilty. I talk a lot about the people I've lost. I, I, I talk about dead people <laughs> that I love too much. Um, but that's how I keep them alive for me. Okay. All right. Johanna, that's, I never heard that story. I apologize to our listeners in Spain for my pronunciation. It has been 11 years since I spoke Spanish with any regularity, and boy, do you get out of practice. And I'm hoping to fix that as soon as possible. (laughs) Something good. Well, something good for Johanna is that her COVID test came back negative, so she's just got a really bad head cold, and she is going to feel better soon. And... I saw a picture of her just before we recorded this, and she's all snuggled up in bed with Jam. So I hopefully she's on the mend. Hopefully I haven't made this a total fucking nightmare to edit. Something good. Um, okay, this is more of a, not a correction, but a clarification. I recommended For All Mankind a little while ago. I still recommend it. It's very, very good, but it's heavy. It is heavy. That show deals with, oh boy, That show deals with LGBTQ issues. It deals with grief, serious grief. It's heavy, but it's very good for all mankind. The other thing that we just watched uh, over the weekend was the new Netflix series on Challenger, which was great. It was a pretty stunning reminder of how far we've come and still how far we have to go in terms of racism and sexism. But that was just... 80s news report. And I know some of you are going to say, oh, Annie, stop being so liberal, blah, blah, blah. But literally, they're talking to a female astronaut, a female astronaut. And they're like, hey, little lady, you looking forward to going into space? Come on, we can all agree, right? Things needed to change. It also got Paul real, Paul gets really fired up about Challenger because he's an engineer and they didn't listen to the engineers. For me, it was really nice to learn more about the crew. So I want to recommend that. And then, of course, my something good is Spain. I cannot wait to go to Spain. It is, again, like Spain and Portugal, Vienna, not Vienna now, just Austria in general, and the UK are like my top, our top three trips. And I feel like people from all of those countries, it might be a big group tour. But I I love Spain so much. I cannot recommend it. If you ever have the chance to go and visit, it's the best people. It's, well, every country I've been to, it's the best people. But really, like wonderful people, beautiful country, wonderful food, all positive things. So... Please, once we're all able to travel safely, I hope we do, and uh, do our very, very best to help support these, you know, industries that rely so heavily on tourism, like the area where I live. 
Okay, let's wrap this up. Thank you so much if you've left us a review. If you enjoy the show, maybe not this specific one. I'm sorry, I've done the best I can. But if you enjoy the show and you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, that is how other people find us. That is how advertisers find us. That is how... um. I don't know. iTunes just rules everything, and that's the world we live in. So if you can leave a review with them, that would be very much appreciated. No matter where you are in the world, we see them, we read them. They very often make our day. They occasionally make us cry. It's fine. We cry easy these days. You can't hurt us. All right. Next is Patreons. Patreon, not Patreons. Patrons of Patreon. Hey, I... I love our listeners. I love our patrons. Game night. We just had a game night. It was so much fun. We played Cards Against Humanity. We're finally, we're figuring out how it all works. We're getting better at it. It was a lot of fun. I haven't laughed that much in quite a while. So thank you very much to our murder level patrons. There's an unboxing video there. There's a video of Johanna and I eating <laughs> Necco wafers. There's an early access. Um, we do what we can. We have more things planned, but we really appreciate it. For merch, our P.O. box, email, all of that, you can find at our website, which is freshhelppodcast.com. Our email, of course, is freshhelppodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. The only one we don't really use so much is Twitter, I think. But we're definitely on Instagram. Say hi to your pets, all of them, the scaly ones, the slimy ones. Give the new snails a ge the gentlest of strokes for us. Uh, we have a we have a listener friend who just got snails. I'm excited for this journey that we're about to embark with them in their snail raising process. But yeah, say hi to all the pets. We love them. We love you. And as always, if you're going through hell, please keep going. Bye. Johanna, feel better. I hop. <laughs>